Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Renata Quintini, partner at Lux, and Brian Frank, early stage investor and advisor to food tech companies. What is food tech? So food tech really encompasses everything about technology as it's applied to the broad food system, from the way that we grow our food to how it reaches our dinner table, and even into things like human health, because we have mounting obesity and malnutrition problems that are faced in the world. So the way that I think about it is breaking up into these little segments as part of the system. So the first one is how do we grow it or make the food? And that encompasses agricultural practices, but also includes now new bioscience approaches to uh, improve food or make food better for the growing population of the world. And then you have the supply chain. So once the farmer farms it, how does it go from the farm to a processing plant or to a grocery store? And there's a whole lot of logistics and operations that need to happen in that process. And there's a lot of innovation efficiencies within that process that we can improve with technology. And then you talk about commercial. So you talk about your retailers, your restaurants, the people that actually are preparing your food for you or getting it ready to go to market. How do they handle the food? How do they market it to you? How do you find out about new products? Um, how do you engage with things like ordering things at a table or going to a restaurant or delivery, which is now a disruptor to the commercial practice of having a restaurant? And then finally, there's the consumer home. Because in the past, most people cooked their food at home and that's where they got their food. We still are a culture that likes to cook and produce, you know, uh, homemade food for our families and have a, you know, a, a hearth around which we gather. And then I extend it to one other segment, which is human health, because what we eat is medicine or is the nutrition for this engine we call our body. And so how do we feed people better so that we have the health outcomes that we really want to achieve for the world? So that's the all-encompassing kind of spectrum of, of food tech and, and, and the world in which it lives. Can you give an example of perhaps a big company per sector? Yeah. So in the growing space, obviously, um, we are blessed being here in Northern California by being the salad bowl of the country. Um, so there are companies like Taylor Farms, which is one of the biggest growers of leafy greens in California and distributes it US-wide into all your grocery stores. So you can easily find their products. In the food processing space, uh, you're talking about people like Nestle's or Campbell's Soup that take the raw product that the growers give you and then produce things like soups or you know snacks and things like that for you. In the commercial space, you have big retailers like Whole Foods, Amazon, as well as big grocery chains or big restaurant chains like McDonald's and Burger King and things like that that dominate the commercial market. In the home kitchen, there's a lot of different types of products or services. You can consider Uber Eats in the home market because they deliver food to your home. But you can also uh, imagine people like Samsung that provide your refrigerator or your microwave as part of that home environment that are building technology for that space. And then in human health, we're starting to see the first generation companies that are equating food and health. Normally, you've seen this in the medical space, right? You've seen things like Simulac for babies and things like that. That's their first formula. Or you've seen Insure, which is for adult health and things like that. But we're now seeing a plethora of companies that are looking at how do we improve human health using food as the vehicle with which to deliver optimum nutrition to people. So companies like Habit that's here in Northern California as well would fall into that health plus food kind of kind of category. Do you have anything to add, Renata, about how you guys think about Food tech at yeah, and, and I'd add just a, a sort of a horizontal dimension of really truth and transparency. I think people are definitely interested in understanding what are we putting into our bodies, how it is made, how fresh is it, 
and what are the impacts going to be. So things that are connecting supply chain to the end consumer, so things like leveraging DNA, spectronomy, or those things to understand what's really inside the food. So companies like Clear Labs, for instance, that will say, what's in a hot dog? And do you really want to eat this hot dog? Uh, and how do you actually create consumer products around that? Uh, it's a very important trend. And I think another trend that is opposite to food as medicine is uh, food is making us sicker. I think the idea of leveraging for scale and leveraging for mass, you have a lot of processed, a lot of sugar. And what not only are the, the new versions or better for you versions of those things, but also the rise in allergies and food sensitivities, and it comes really from the way that we produce and consume our foods. So how can we actually reverse those trends and make you know food better for us across all realms? Right. I want to ask you guys both in a bit about where you're looking to invest and what your thesis is in this space, but first perhaps we could start with maybe a brief history of how the field has evolved over time. Yeah, I think so. The funny joke I always hear is, what did we call organic food in the 1950s? It was called food. And so um, <laughs> we started as a very obviously agrarian society in America. Everybody grew the food that they needed, and then we started to consolidate. As kind of urbanization and industrialization happened, and World War II ended, we needed more food on the table. And so it became industrialized in a way, much like every other industry became industrialized. So things started moving into plants, and we started using chemicals to in induce more quantity, but not necessarily quality in our product. And so we developed a very industrialized food ecosystem. Uh, I would call it uh, nutrition light calorie heavy, right? Because we wanted calories, but we didn't understand the value of the nutrition that was coming with it. We're now coming out of that revolution, that industrialized revolution, and looking back, like Renata said, into how can food be better for us and how can we produce it to include all the nutrients we need to know the farmers, the places where it's being produced, um, make it more trustworthy, reliable. And I would say bigger issue is sustainability. Because with the industrialized uh, nature of food, we were taking more resources out of the land than we were putting back in. And so that inhibits the scalability of food production for our next generation. And so all of that has led to what I think is the opportunity for us as investors and startups is to create a more sustainable, trustworthy, highly nutritious food system with a lot less inhibitors or things that would just take away from that food system, which includes things like uh, lack of productivity in the supply chain. Uh, one of the big macro challenges we have to face now is because of the previous food system, we have climate change as an issue we have to deal with. Both the food system causes it and is a big repercussion to the food system. And so how do we make plants that are more drought tolerant? Because water is at a premium these days, not as plentiful as we would like. So I think once we come out of that industrialized revolution, we've rethought how food needs to get to the table. And that's kind of created all this opportunity in food tech. Right. So I, I grew up in Brazil and, you know, Brazil is, is, is the mecca for, for delicious all around great quality food. And, you know, we're, Brazil is also a net exporter of so many food items that, you know, nature bounty. So what we saw actually in Brazil was a couple of different trends. One was, the better quality, nicer looking things, they got better pricing on the market. So that, that, that was the export. And then the second one was, okay, what was left over was the not such great quality, things that didn't look so great or didn't taste so great. So how can you actually use science to help make your export more attractive and also the leftover more attractive? So you have a, a production mechanism that optimizes for for looks and optimizes for taste, but doesn't optimize for, for health. 
And I mean, it, it did happen in other places as well. But what you see now is a, is a reversal of, you know, we really want not things that look great, but things that are better for us. And if you saw here what happened in the industrial, I was actually reading another article the other day talking about the obesity problem and how food, especially the industrialized one, is designed to make you addicted. And it says it's a losing battle because it, the quantity of sugar, the fats that they use, the taste is so good that it touches the wiring of your brain in a different way that you cannot even fight back. So that reversal of let's peel the, the layers of the industrialization, peel the ingre- ingredients and actually understand not only just, just taste and availability, but, but quality and, and health is a, a, a critical tenet. And where is the perception of the relationship between technology and food today. I remember in the 90s, early 2000s, very high level of knowledge of this. When GMOs were coming out, there was a lot of controversy around them. You know, things like Soylent in the last few years becoming a bit more mainstream, but still, I guess, sort of an early adopter, you know, tech community. Where is sort of perception in the industry of fusing technology with, with food? Yeah, I think there's, there's definitely been two camps that have built up the pioneers and the innovators that are going down the fully technified food route, route, you know, the soylents of the world, um, which are saying, uh, soylent can all be an all in one food that you can just drink, you know, every day and you'd be healthy and things like that. And then there's the traditionalists, you know, the people that grew up raising cattle or raising, you know, growing sorghum or things like that. They're like, don't change the system. I just want to make more and have reproducibility of what I'm doing today. And I call it the high school dance problem. It's like the guys and the girls are on either side and they don't want to dance with each other. So like the farmers say that Soylent stuff is crazy, but then the guys that are making Soylent or the guys that are trying to pioneer are saying like, well, you're stuck in your traditional ways. And so um, one of my thesis is we can build better companies or better products by collaborating, right? If we get the best technologists with the best food people, the idea is uh, one plus one will equal three in that situation. And you're starting to see that um, with some of the next generation companies. People like Impossible Foods, Pat Brown, who took science about how to develop this this core ingredient, heme, and applied it to plant-based products to make them more yummy, to make them taste more like meat. And he doesn't hide that they use you know standard plant-based products in their product stack and things like that. But he's like, we need to do it differently. And so he's brought the best food scientists along with the best bioscientists together to kind of create a, a next generation food company. So I see a lot of opportunity, but I would say we're still stuck in that. People are innovating on either side of that fence and, and we got to figure out how to get them to collaborate more on that. Yeah, I, I, the way I see technology playing in the space, you have one area which is just scale, repeatability, and efficiency and cost, yes. right? If you look at the, pr- the production scale of food, what are the, the lessons that we can apply from other industries, be it AI, computer vision, robotics, so on and so forth, to make the production just more scalable, more reliable, and less seasonal, right? So like yield, cost, efficiency, which technology is great for. And then there are also the the other creation of, of new that technology is so good at. Like, what's the next frontier? And you see some advancements in um, synthetic biology for, okay, you know, we, we have natural resources that are becoming scarce or they're be creating a lot of environmental externalities. Can science come in and, and replace some of that? Or we're going to need more protein by 2050 than we can produce consciously and environmentally friendly, can science come in and, and take some of that? So you see also that wave of synthetic biology and creation of just beyond like reutilizing plants and ingredients that we already have to create new flavors, but actually, can we create new cell structures 
to replace what nature offers. So that that's another area that technology is playing a role And if you well. put GMOs to the side for a second, because that's probably one of the most derisive areas for science versus, you know, traditionalism in terms of food, take labor shortage right now that's happening in food and agriculture. If we look at what we have in terms of labor to pick our vegetables and fruits, the labor policies today are meaning we have less people that are actually coming in our country to actually do that. And, and no millennial, you know, from San Francisco is going to go down to Salinas and pick you know, lettuce as their next career move. So uh, the reality is the farmers down there are facing a really big challenge where hardware automation and robotics are actually there to solve a problem. And they're all actually now asking for it. So they're being faced by real existential crises. And we don't have people to pick our vegetables. Why aren't we now looking at robotics and automation to weed pick vegetables, do the repetitive hard to do tasks so that we can up level humans within that process and pay them a, a meaningful wage, right? And not pay a very small wage for a very low skilled highly risky labor. And I think a tangent to that point that that I just I love that trend is really how can we get the most out of the least, which is really the the sort of the optimization problem, right? So you you have high usage of water, high usage of fertilizers, not only the cost implications but the health implications of that. So how can we actually make the whole process more efficient? So you see a lot of robotics and computer vision being applied to that. How can we get the best yield of my crop? almost like a little bit like Dar- Darwinism looking at what's growing and picking out the best ones and not, not nurturing the not so great ones. And also less quantity of fertilizer per volume so that it's safe, safer and healthier for you, right? So you see companies like Blue River, FarmWise, and a bunch of others that are thinking about how do you build technology-assisted farming process that will be better yield better for you, less fertilizer, less cost. But going back to your question about what's changed or what historically has happened is we literally thought of these resources as limitless, right? It rained last year, it'll rain again this year. Well, that's just not the truth of the world that's going forward, right? And if you look at where the temperate zones for some of these thing products are growing, they're starting to shift. And so if you look at the change of like coffee production over the last 20 years and the next 20 years, it's going to shift to higher elevations. It's going to get really shrunk. And so we could see a spike in prices of coffee and chocolates and things like that that only live in a very temperate zone. So unless we invest in things like biosciences to improve how drought tolerant those crops are or to increase the likelihood that they can be grown indoors, for example, um, we could lose whole swaths of crops or at least crop land you know, that we assumed was just going to be there forever. And at the same time that the demand for food is increasing, the waste is also ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, then when you look at it, the other side, it's like, not only do we need to increase production, we need to get stuff More that's been wasted yes. back into market. And so we waste anywhere between 33 to 40% of food throughout the system, whether it's at the home or in the distribution center. And so I've invested personally in a company called Spoiler Alert that's a, uh, a SaaS for surplus food management at the distribution level. So when things are going near expired, they can get it back in the market, either through donation or through discounted sales. And the idea there is don't let things just waste away sitting on a, on a dock or in a pallet and stuff like that. Find a home for it. And there's other companies like Imperfect uh, Produce that's selling them at the commercial level. You can go buy a box of, you know, uh, ugly fruits or vegetables. Misfit Juice, which is turning ugly ju- ugly fruits and vegetables into juice. and Full Harvest? Full Harvest, thank you. That's doing it at the agricultural level, helping repurpose products that are ugly, that can't be sold on the commercial side into food processors. And so all these companies are relatively new companies that are trying to take on this massive problem getting these products to people that could actually use them. And I think that's the other thing that we're starting to see, which is food prices in general as ingredients have fallen, but the cost of good organic food is going up. 
because people see organic as a marketing term. I can add 25 to 30 cents to my product by calling it organic. There's also obviously a whole lot of practices that have to go behind that. Certification. Certification. It's three years of land management. It's cost. It's effort. And we don't have enough organic land in the U.S. right now to service the demand. So part of the challenge is how do we get people to do organic practices, but without incurring all the cost and effort to do it so that we can increase the access to these products that people want. And so that goes back to the technology is how do you make it easier? How do you monitor the land for them using sensors and equipment? How do you do all this kind of as a layer so that not each individual has to reproduce it themselves, right? And that's what technology is really great at. When you provide a solution, then you can go give it to everybody and they can up-level themselves with it. Well, and, and a very t- tangential point to that is the the phenomenon of indoor farming, right? Because that that is one around not only sort of cost and efficiency and yield output, but also how do we fight seasonality or bad climates or how do we bring closer production to the demand and how can we bring healthier food for everyone and you see companies like plenty or bowery that just raised a massive round last week you know is that a a a good solution or not i mean the jury's still out on the cost side of the equation because you you take labor out but you have a lot of energy costs to maintain all the all the computers and the inputs going but it's definitely a trend worth watching Right. And indoor farming has been, has had a long history overseas. And so I think we're as a U.S. as country starting to get more excited about it. But in the Netherlands and in Israel, where things aren't as plentiful as we have here in the U.S., right? They've been doing indoor farming for a, a long time. So I think we're now coming to the cusp of the U.S. is going to cap out on like what it's able to produce given the land and resources it has. So how do we increase production given we know one thing? People want local fresh product. Right. And so like you go anywhere, like local is plastered all over every Whole Foods. It's like, this is local. And uh, more people are spending more money for local things that come from five miles rather than 5,000 miles kind of away. I think that that's somewhat of a misnomer, though, because I think that there are products that are a product of their region. Things like wine. Right. Wine represents a region and stuff like that. So still French wine still command a premium and stuff like that. But we're starting to see companies that are trying to emulate like the production of wine and liquor, Endless Distillery used to be Ava Winery that's doing production of scotches and wines that mimic things that could have been produced in nature. And so we're trying to mimic or emulate these natural resources in more synthetic ways. And it'll be interesting to see as a consumer, like, do they want it because it was produced in France or do they want it just because of the taste? And so we're going to get a lot of choices. Yeah. And I've seen companies that are actually trying to take that same principle of let's emulate nature, but allow new flavors to be created. And I wonder if that's a more interesting way to say, oh, you know, that tastes just like the wine in France. Why don't you go get the authentic to say we can actually create new flavors and experiences that didn't exist before? Yeah. I wonder if that's going to have a, a more interesting appeal. So uh, one company that's actually doing a synthetic hops that will allow you know master brewers to create the type of taste that they want and mix and match different flavors and kind of going on the, the the wave of the craft beers and says this is something you cannot get anywhere else and this is my brand this is a unique experience i wonder if that's going to be a, a more fruitful way to go 
Well, and also you see what I think you were referring to earlier, which is we need to do things differently from a, a sugar perspective yes. or from a taste and flavor perspective. And so you're seeing companies that are trying to reduce the amount of sugar we use in our products by finding new and novel biotech approaches to these things. Like the company I really love is Mycotechnologies, which is there's a mycelium or mushroom that will reduce the bitterness in a product, which naturally amps up the sweetness. So you don't have to use as much sugar in a product. They found out also the same product has the ability to add protein. And so we become more interested in protein-packed products. So now they can sell a very similar product that's called the protein enhancer. And so we can actually imbue food with more capabilities or create new food structures that we otherwise couldn't that I think are going to create more demand or interest in these high quality foods. The other company that I want to point out in this space, again, full disclosure investment of mine is Geltor. They grow gelatin or collagen. Pitch them, Brian. Yeah. Uh, in, I don't have to. I mean, they <laughs> raised their Series plug. A. So so I, I'm, they're good on, on capital right now. But uh, they produce collagen and gelatin in fermentation tanks. And so there was a long-held traditional belief that collagen and gelatin came from dead animal skins and bones. And they rethought that to grow it from using yeast and bacteria as the factories to produce these things. Well, the reality is collagen is used in a ton of products from cosmetics, pharmaceuticals, materials, and food. And the reality is... As we move off of animals as our main source for other things like protein, we're going to lose gelatin or collagen. Or the inverse is if you have a swine flu outbreak that takes one third of all collagen producing pigs out of the market, a commodity price point will spike. And so how do you smooth that for all the companies that need to use this product? And so they found a real novel way to produce it, but it takes a real mind shift right, to think about this is not coming from my normal traditional ways, this is coming from a new science or honestly, what's a thousand-year-old science fermentation, but we're producing new products using it. And so to your point, uh, Eric, about like, where's the camps going? I think we're at a stage where everything is possible and we're exploring and trying all these new things. And then it's going to become a real thing about economics and how the consumers react. And that's, I think, the next shift that happens in this ecosystem is once we have all the opportunities, what lives and what dies, you know, through that process. That's where trust and transparency, I think, are going to be really paramount. Agreed. I want to ask, historically, how have incumbents and startups played together in the space? Because I feel like I'm hearing about Soylent and Memphis Meats and Possible Foods fairly only recently, last five, five-ish years, maybe a bit longer. But has this been an incumbent-dominated industry for, for quite some time? Or And if we're starting to see sort of an explosion of startups in the space, why? Well, I think that something that has really changed is the same thing we saw in just traditional e-commerce, which is just different ways to distribute and, and reach the customers. Uh, I mean, food in particular, you need the physical retailer. There are some types of food products that need cold chain refrigeration that need a lot of different types of distribution. Part of it is, you know, with Soylent and other brands, the ability to also go direct or to leverage the Amazon platform to to fulfill some of your stuff. I think it really, really helps. And it, it makes a huge difference in sort of launching new brands and creating new products. Uh, do you disagree? Yeah. No, I agree 100%. I think uh, the internet and direct-to-consumer commerce has radically changed the way that people think about go-to-market within this sector, and it blindsided the big manufacturers in this space. So if you look at who controls most of the food in the United States that we eat, it's a very small percentage number of companies. Monsanto? Uh, well, I mean, Monsanto from a growing perspective, um, you know, uh, Bayer Syngenta as well, you know, in that, in the growing technologies. Because if you look at those companies, you know, Kellogg's, Campbell's, Coca-Cola, they Nestle. own the shelf space. Nef yeah. they, they own, own the, shelf the shelf space. space. And it's all of that game of, 
you know, who's going to get the end cap where and who's going to control the retailer and what do you show and what do you demo in the store. So actually knowing for a food brand, knowing how to play the in-store game is something really important. But their innovation cycles were very long. And so for them to come up with and deliver a new product, it took too long. And that's where Soylent, I mean, let's give them credit. They came up with a new model, which was, we'll keep iterating. And that's not what traditional food does. Actually, if you look at the balance sheets of public food companies, their R&D spends about 2% of revenue. Yeah. Tech companies, 20, 25, 30%. Exactly. That's not what they do. Yeah. Right. They are, they are a marketing organization with a yes. little bit of R&D. And so when you have a Soylent or you have a Chobani, I mean, Chobani is a great example, right? They basically create, reinvigorated the category of yogurts and stuff like that, or any of these people that had kind of disrupted what the previous big brands were thinking of doing. And then you see even people go farther, like the Memphis meets the world that says like, so what if your meat didn't come from a chicken? right? Or didn't come from a pig. And then a Tyson's or a Cargill, they take interest because they're like, oh, well, if that happens, existential threat to our business, we go out of business. So we better, and this is why Tyson's then rebranded themselves from being a chicken or a a pork company to a protein company because they want to encompass these new technologies. So if you ask like what's happened in big traditional food, uh, the big guys have been losing billions of dollars of market cap because of new entrants into the space, mainly in the plant-based category. That's been the fastest growing category that's completely upended these guys. And they're all going out now and buying plant-based food companies. That's where your impossible foods and beyond meat, you know, kind of come in. The next one is the science-driven businesses. Like Renata said, they're not spending a lot on their R&D, so their scientists aren't designing down that route. So they're going to get involved. And that's why people like Tyson Ventures have put money into both Beyond Meat and Memphis Meats as a hedge against their future business so that they can be in that business as well if it becomes a, a big threat to their existing business. Some people are getting very aggressive about that, which is awesome. Cargill has a fund. Monsanto's fund now is transferred to DCVC, so Data Collective now wow. has, has the Monsanto right. yeah. team. Isn't Monsanto, I could be wrong here, but like one of the most disliked brands in America? Yes. Why aren't they disrupted? I mean, is it also true that there's like government regulation, like certain things that like governmental policies that sort of prop up incumbents in this industry? Is that incorrect? It, it prompts up the farming of soybean and corn, which are kind of the basis for a lot of our food products, right? So uh, corn syrup obviously being a staple in terms of a sugar substitute and things like that. Um, that makes certain products ridiculously low on cost to produce. And so that's why the big food manufacturers that have based their products on soy or corn can get away charging less than what would normally be to produce those things. Uh, but I think going back to Monsanto, that the, they owned a channel. And that's the really the hardest part to to crack. They own the seeds, primarily seeds, fully vertically and the and the pesticides and other things that use. So if someone came into your office and said, "Hey, I'm trying to build a full stack Monsanto," if it was built in 2018, 2019, would you say, "Hey, you're, you're crazy. There's no way one could do that." Crazy is good. It's yeah. not bad. But then the question, you know, for I, when I meet a lot of the ag tech startups that actually sell to farmers, I actually. You know, technology may be awesome, but where I spend time is what is your distribution strategy and how are you going to scale it and how are you going to line channel to sell your stuff? Because you plateau, you plateau pretty quickly and it's, you know, that's the biggest innovation. It's crazy to say that, but more than the technology that you create, the ability to get in front of the farmer and make the farmer buy you versus something else in a very sort of long tail fragmented market is not trivial. Yeah, but I would say just to touch on the Monsanto thing and and not intending to denigrate anything Monsanto's done or talk positive or negative about it, the reality is biosciences have changed. 
radically in terms of their abilities since the early Monsanto days and what we should be using them for and not using them for. And I think that that's where there's an ethics to a company that I also look for, which is like, are you on the good side or are you on the positive side of where the world needs to go, right? And to your point about the market, I think that there is ways to build a bioscience-based business like a ginkgo. Right. That's doing things in a bioscience friendly way, but they're trying to introduce products that are needed and necessary, not propping up their own market. Right. They're trying to help and work with the farmers and people like that. So I think the next generation of what I would consider to be Monsanto or Bayer Syngenta like companies are more ethically oriented into the farmer and the producer's needs, helping them solve real problems. And so I think there will be new bioscience companies. There will be new Monsanto. There'll be new Johnson and Johnsons. There'll be, you know, everybody that is doing things with chemicals will be disrupted with new advanced biosciences at the end of the day. Well, and you see Monsanto, Syngenta, these players actually being on the cap table of their next disruptors. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, Syngenta Ventures has done a number of investments in things like Blue River um, automation of, of farm equipment and things like that. So we see them wanting to get out of the game of chemical production and into natural, healthy ingredients, as well as better farming practices. So yeah, And the question is, how do you get to scale? Right? Yeah, right. And I think the closest that you need to get to the farmer changing its practices, the more you need the channel to help you. That's right. And that's going back to your original question is where are the big guys going? The big guys are going becoming channel enablers not assuming they can own the channel. And so they're buying up a lot of little brands or they're investing in early stage tech companies because they're like, we need to be on the right side of history. And these guys are going to move faster, break things and find new ways of doing things that we can't do internally. And so when you talk to the big manufacturers, they either have a plan to be a venture fund themselves. They have a plan to seed an incubator or accelerator, or they have some springboard or some way of getting new brands into market using their knowledge and expertise. So channel becomes an enabler, not a detractor. And I think they all recognize, like, if they want to keep their billion dollars of market cap, they're going to need to play in the startup world, which is great for us, right? And then you look at, from a venture perspective, and I'd love to get Renata's take on this, you look at where these companies will end up fulfilling their promise. And one of my minds says, well, it could be IPO, right? So Beyond Meat just filed to to IPO their company, which will be the first major plant-based company to, to IPO. But more likely, the money is already locked up in the system somehow by these big manufacturers. And so we're seeing a lot of strategic, you know, JVs or acquisitions. So the acquisition fervor has heated up a lot in the last three years. Um, so I'd love, you know, what, what your take is like, where do you go if you're a startup? Like, what's your route to market and who do you partner with? Or do you just go it alone? I mean, Soylent's a great example. They went it alone, you know? From a, a you know, big brand perspective, like you kind of look at the risk you're not willing to take is not that, you know, your food didn't taste good or your customer didn't really like the flavor. You actually are really afraid of making people sick and the, the brand backlash. So I think it's going to be very hard to find bigger brands that are willing to sort of innovate new product categories and new product launches. So that's where a startup is really advantage. Like you go take this formulation risk, this creation risk, this early market risk. And I think there's like this really big arbitrage potential for when you have something that is inflecting really well, but is not gigantic and it has big strategic value for an acquirer. And that could be like a really great uh, way for you to sort of monetize or have an acquisition there that you you know, you, you, you get that uh, expected value of somebody that has bigger scale than you to kind of distribute it beyond you co- what you could. And that's a very interesting way to get a big bite of the apple. 
So in that sense, actually getting them into your cap table is probably not, you know, the ideal way if you're thinking about something that's not going to scale that largely and you, you want to get an M&A. So you probably should try to go for that. But if you really want to scale big and, and have a, a really massive outcome, then you bring those people as, as partners to leverage at their distribution capabilities. And then you kind of go for the, the big IP or go home and then they may end up taking you, but that's not your your path, your desired path. I think the good thing is we had a case study recently in the food tech world, which was the meal kit companies, right? So we had all this fervor two or three years ago, Blue Apron is going to change the world and Plate is going to change the world. Um, and what you see is Blue Apron still out there kind of independently on the on the market, but all the other guys have gotten acquired by either food companies or retail distributors because they're like, it's just another way to service our food. Right? That's right. And it's not, it's not the big disruptor that they were thinking it was going to be to their overall business, right? Safeway acquired one, right? Uh, yeah. and, and, and played it if I'm played it. I yeah. Th- I and so. it, I mean, it's a great business for Safeway because people go like, okay, what am I going to have for dinner? Is it the rotisserie chicken? Is it something else? Or is it the box of plated that I just go take home and I make it? Because it, for these, for the startup, there's actually less customer loyalty than you know, people expected. And also the alternative set increased quite a bit with DoorDash, Uber Eats, etc. Like I don't need, I don't want to have to plan a lot in advance. And if the box that comes from me for Wednesday, I don't like what it is. I, I don't want the waste either. Right. So that idea of what's convenient, what's tasty and uh, available, the consideration set has changed. So that really made meal kids suffer. Right. So I think there's some that will benefit from partnering or taking act dollars from the big food manufacturers because it'll help them with challenges that they couldn't face alone. And then there's companies that are truly going to really disrupt the industry. And we could see a Monsanto or a Nestle disruptor in our short lifetime right now. In fact, I think we see a couple of companies that have the potential, but they just have to get through so many other hurdles to get to the scale. Because you're talking about disrupting companies with 100 year plus, you know, history of making products. You can't just say that's going to... And when you say hurdles, is it mostly regulatory? Is it it distribution? Is it... What? I mean, depends on the technology or the category of, of company. But Nestle I, Disruptor. Yeah, Nestle Disruptor is dis- distribution, right? I mean, like they have relationships with all the major, you know, food manufacturers. They have both a food service and a retail arm. So they're in your university or your corporate kitchen, but they're also on shelves at Whole Foods and they command premium location because they can spend. So what is a type of distribution strategy that a startup could come pitch to you and you'd be like, wow, that's really potentially you could disrupt Nestle. Like what are some things you've heard or look for? I mean, I think the one thing that all of these big food manufacturers don't understand is direct to consumer and understanding at a, at a, at a, at a discrete level who your consumer are and why they buy your product and why they'll keep coming back to you. So the, the, the Warby Parker, like, like Warby Parker or, or, or Casper and things like that is getting into someone's home and understanding what keeps you in that home through a direct relationship. Cause they're all used to the retailer or distributor model and they don't understand how to treat you, Eric, as an individual. And so they're looking at these new companies. Uh, I'll give you a good example. One of my favorite examples of this is a company called Tavala out of Chicago. They're making a oven that uses both steam and, and baking style cooking to make you a new toaster. Um, and they partnered with Tyson's and Tyson's is really looking at them going like, you know how to get in someone's home and provide a meal that people will love. We've never done that, right? We've had things that will sell in a frozen aisle or a fresh aisle of a, of a retailer and then try to market that, but we've never gone right to someone's home. And that's what we want to learn from you new novel companies that are getting into people's pantry. I, I, I think that where it starts is actually creating a product or value prop that doesn't exist, 
right? Because that gives you the allowance to have that conversation with the customer, right? Why, how, why would the customer listen? It's like the, the dog that puts the ear up, like what's going to make the customer put the ear up? And then it's exactly what, what Brian said, because old brands, what they're used to knowing is the report of safety of how many people bought my box of Kellogg's cereal, but not who, when, what else did they buy? What else do they care about and how do they make a relationship with that person? And that's really differentiated. Yeah. I think they're, they're all also looking at, if you've seen this rise of cashier, cashierless stores, like the Amazon goes the world where you're actually tracking what people are picking up, looking yeah. at and then putting back. Right. Right. Like this is data that they didn't have about their consumer behaviors that they are jonesing to have. Or how do you market one to one online? Because like when I was saying, they're used to spending six, million dollars on a 30 second, you know, Super Bowl ad. They're not used to going on Facebook and targeting, you know, a specific set of consumers with a specific need. And one of the things that I think that's happening that's the macro change is that we're becoming part of food tribes. And so people identify as I'm paleo or I'm, you know, part-time vegan, you know, on on weekdays or something like that. And they get into these mindsets and the the new food tech companies or companies that have food they're trying to tech Affy their their supply chain and their and their connection to the customer. They recognize how do I get those people that have a passion or an interest in something to constantly come back to my product. I think you know you saw this in nutrition bars and stuff like that. There was a explosion of nutrition bars on the thing because everybody wanted uh, nutrition on the go, right? And that became a thing, and so now like everybody went out for that market. I think with healthy snacking or with indulgence but without the guilt. Is like the biggest category. Like, you look at Halo Top. Like, yeah. if anybody has yeah. a Halo, had a Halo Top, I'm not a fan of the flavors, but like, they're selling hundreds of millions of dollars worth of product on branding alone that you can eat a whole tub and it's only 220 calories or something like that. Right. So they're finding new ways to reach the audience uh, with a message that matters, and I think that that's hard for the big brands. Yeah, but I think it. I think you touched on a when you talked about Amazon Go. I think you touched on an important trend, which is the ability to turn food information, the biology of food, into data. Right. Like you, we don't even need to wait for cashierless stores to see buying habits and new sensors being used. So Instacart, actually one of the biggest values that they gave to the retailers and brands that partnered with them is say, when you are out of stock, people chose X, Y, and Z instead of you. So then retailers can actually optimize their stock a little bit better and you know who exactly is your competitor. And you, you'll say, people will say, okay, they bought your product, but these are the other things that they bought as well. So you can get a better demographic read of of your customer and what what do they want right and and to do that at scale it's going to reap massive benefits to the creator of food and to the provider of the experience because you know as as real estate costs go up the cost of providing those services and people want more convenience they want to know exactly what should i be buying where and make it really easy and, and accessible and i'll go even one step before that which is i think that the data that's available at the shelf level or what consumers want is so opaque because it's it's kept behind the retailers coffers. And so if you're a food manufacturer, all you know is that some people have reordered and you have to do your own analysis of who reordered, why, like what's going on in San Francisco that month that made my product sell better. And the next generation of retailers or startups are looking at how do we get the data through to the food producers? So I'll give you one example of a problem that was proposed to me where AI and machine learning can play a big role, which is I want to predict before I put fruit on a boat, I'm a fruit manufacturer in Latin America. Uh, the second I put that fruit on the boat, it's committed 
committed to its retailer or location. But if it's not going to sell that month because of weather or buying habits, I need to know that ahead of time because I can waste product or I can get less than the full dollar for that product. So how do I do predictive intelligence with all the data resources that I can marshal? And right now, the retailers aren't set up to give you that data. And so there's a whole new world coming of knowing about your consumers that will help you both sell on store shelf but also could open up more opportunities to sell direct. And I've seen companies kind of go one step deeper into the value chain that says based on the price of commodities and the type of of land and, and climate that you have, these are the crops that you should plant. Don't do this quality of orange, do that other quality of orange and do it this way, optimizing that or that type of input to maximize your right. revenues. It's a really interesting flow of what data can I get to plan my shipments right. or harvest? And then what goes back into as a feedback loop, That's right. right? Into producing better product in the future. And everything in the food industry is about risk. And so technology has this amazing ability to reduce a lot of risk in the system if you have access to the data. If you can do high-end analysis to figure out where things need to go, what time, what people want. There's another company I'm really enamored by. I met them very early on called Analytical Flavor Systems. They claim they can predict what individuals in a region will like from a taste profile. So they can go to a, a, a Coca-Cola or a PepsiCo and say, I can tell you what flavors are going to be needed in your next generation beverages based on what the trends are in these specific, very minute micro regions. I was like, that's really interesting. It changes the whole game for for food formulation. So forget the Frito-Lays contest of what it is that you want to see on Frito-Lays, user-generated stuff. Right. Use systems. Use AI to help predict that based on trends and behaviors and uh, sensory input. Um, There's even one company that uh, it's even farther out there called Aromics. And Aromics, basically, you swab a a part of your product on what's called a synthetic uh, biochip. And it has all these little sensors that are basically the bioreceptors of taste and smell. And basically, they can create a histogram of the flavor profile of a product. And so you can tell ahead of time, like, if a reformulation matches, you know, the intended desire. So if we're trying to reformulate Pepsi to be, have less sugar, like, people aren't going to give up the taste. Like, we learned that from what is New Coke and stuff like that. Like, they, they want the taste, but they want less sugar. And so companies can think about reformulating or refactoring based on better data because the science is science and AI can unlock that. That's right. And it's really fun to kind of look at the technology evolution in the context of the five senses, right? And when it comes to to food and, and robotics, et cetera, I'd say like vision is excellent. Like we can see, you can see at high resolution and interpret. So from what Brian is saying, you know, the sense of taste and sense of smell, it's improving. But one that is still not that great is tactile, right? And kind of thinking about the labor replacement and, and, and farmlands and, you know, the, the picking and the, the packing and manipulation is still a, a pretty complicated problem that robotics is not uh, yet excellent at. Uh, and it's still very, uh, single purpose. Right. Why aren't there orders of magnitude more food tech entrepreneurs in the space? I feel like I see a lot more biotech companies, a lot more digital health companies, a lot more Warby Parker competitors or, you know, D2C commerce brands. What's again, why aren't there more food tech companies and what's going to take for there to be much more in the space? It's not, it's not as sexy as going and joining the next or building the next, you know, autonomous transport company, right? At the end of the day. So you have this, like, what does the press write about problem and what's sexy with cryptocurrency? We just all run on crypto, right? But it should be. I mean, we eat food, you know, it's so core. Yeah. And, and I think. Part of the challenge is it's painted as not sexy or it's a traditional industry. But part of the challenge is I think that the food industry ha- it has a very hard 
yield in terms of return on investment. No pun intended. Yeah. Previously, you know, when investors look at the food and food tech world, we valued companies based on multiples of sales and stuff like that. And that's just a traditional thing is you're building a product, you sell it. The reality is science and technology are upending it. And so if you're building the next blockchain company, blockchain for food is one aspect, but it's not the only aspect, right? You're a blockchain company at that point. We are starting to see very secularized people that understand building for the food ecosystem in computer vision, like Renata was saying. Computer vision applied to the food industry has a lot of promise, but no one really thought you can build a big business just in that vertical. And I think that that is really changing. If you look at McDonald's, Dunkin' Donuts, Domino's Pizza, if you look at the market cap and the multiple of revenue that these companies trade, I mean, people have to eat. And we eat at least three times a day. I think it's a combination of the frequency, the brand affinity and affiliation, and the type of margins that you're able to get. Because honestly, like some of these companies trade like software companies. It's when I looked at it, I was, I was shocked. I did not expect it to be that way. And some of them trade, you know, one, two, three times revenue because of uh, margin and complexity and, and low recurrence and all of that stuff. So that's one side of it. Like think about, you know, brand value, repetition, margin of, of the business and, and really that, um, that type of efficiency. And when you kind of look at a food company, you need so many different disciplines to make that successful. You need people that are going to be dealing with the suppliers out in the field, you know, with the, I don't know, the dairy providers or the, you know, the lettuce farmers and need people that can understand that world, procure in that world, negotiate the right quantities and prices. And, you know, everything from that supply chain to creating the product to packaging to, and then you're going to need somebody super sophisticated if you have, you know, new formulations or if you're using AI to do different things or if you're selling to computers, so to consumers. So the, the range of people that you need to have in an organization, the range of capabilities is actually pretty wide. So it's not a simple thing to do. Yeah, I would double down on the experience thing. I think a lot yeah. of people haven't had the experience in the food ecosystem, much like they've had in other kind of tech-driven kind of businesses. Like the guy that works at Facebook can easily go to Uber, right, for for all intents and purposes, because the tech stack and the problems that you face are relatively, relatively similar in terms of what you're trying to accomplish. But you can't take someone and put them on a farm and go understand a farmer's problem if you've never actually been in that, or it's hard to get that innate knowledge. What we see is we see, and I love this profile, which is kids that grew up in farming families or food families went off to a technical school, did a technical job for a couple of years, and then realized, oh my gosh, like I have this innate knowledge of the food industry that comes from my history that I can go back in. Like I'm looking at a company right now, uh, I won't mention it's a, it's a stealth company, but the guy came from a tomato farming family and he went into a technical field, did technical work for a long time, but he came back to the fact he's like, oh my gosh, I can really help tomato farmers with my next evolution of my business. So I think we're starting to see that like going back to your roots and finding what you have unique knowledge. But like I said, I can take some great kids from Stanford or from Berkeley that are tech driven and put them with people in the food industry and create an optimal team. And that's a lot of the time I see great founders that come from a technical thing and they just need to be balanced with understanding of the problems and challenges. Because even if you're not dealing with food products themselves, like, let's just say you're building hardware for something like an electrified tractor, right? You're building something that can be sold as a, as a, as a good. You need to go down and understand what happens Absolutely. on a farm 
to make that happen. And I, again, I'll go back to the unsexiness is like how many people are going to move and sit on a farm for six months to a year when they could be, you know, playing around with, you know, Uber or, you know, some, you know, autonomous driving thing. So I think that's also the hardest challenge for these companies to scale is uh, you have to be able to acquire talent. And you have to convince people that food is a $8.1 trillion industry worldwide. Everything's up for grabs right now, right? In terms of you can innovate at all levels of the system. It is essential, right, for the world and for growth. And the incumbents uh, are cash rich. And the incumbents are cash rich. And you have philanthropic or people that are out there for the good of the world that don't have to steal equity from you. So the Bill Gateses and the Richard Branson's of the world that are spending a lot of money to prop up innovation even before it's reached the mature enough stage for venture to come in and start helping with that thing. So we see a lot of scientific advancements that are on the cusp that will become great disruptors if they're given time to mature and develop. And so we're seeing a lot of medical scientists come out now and starting food tech companies. So like Memphis meets your example, uh, he was a heart surgeon, cardiac work. He said, look, I can do all this stuff repairing hearts, but I can also fix the the symptoms of the problem, which is heart disease comes from eating too much red meat. And let's go fix the meat system, you know, as part of that. So I think we're starting to see that flywheel. And hopefully this podcast helps that. Totally. <laughs> we want to see more. We want to see more. Totally. So what is sort of your request for startups or innovation in the space? Where do you sort of see the white space? What are you looking to invest in for people who are talented technologists or, or have a background similar to what Brian was saying was that they grew up on a farm or have expertise? Where should they go build? Well, I think that for, for Lux and for the things that we get excited about, it really needs to be tech forward and tech enabled. Uh, we like the, the hard stuff, the complicated stuff that, you know, once it's built is a, is a no brainer world, world changing high impact. So for us, just a, a reformulation of a product that doesn't have any, any tech improvement is, is not a match. But, uh, you know, other than that, Anything from egg tech, sensing, yield improving, robotics, farming to the whole, the whole gamut, it's all fair game for us. This is an area that we're really bullish about and we think it's really important. You fast forward 20, 30 years. I mean, this is, this is going to be critical. Uh, and we like to invest in, in the matters that are going to push humanity forward. So like autonomy, transportation, manufacturing, logistics, and food is another right. one of those big categories. And what's another us. example of one of your food tech investments? Uh, so we have one company that's in, on, on stealth that's going to launch in the beginning of next year that is uh, brain nutrition. And we, we have a, a, uh, a lot of advancements in sort of the, the manufacturing side of things to, to create a unique combination of, of nutrients. And the way we thought about it is we built the Intel chip but instead of being Intel, we decided to be Apple. So we are going to have products wrapped around this sort of scientific innovation. But it really is brain nutrition forward, and and which is one of the things that you kind of look at, you know, chronic disease and the ability of quality of life. Brain really matters. Cool. I've got a a long list. Yeah. It take more than this this podcast, but I'll give you some of my highlights of areas that I'm most excited about. And uh, the way that I look at involving myself in companies is they have to have a big problem statement that they're trying to solve because big problems lead to big solutions. And so we're problem driven in terms of the way that I make my investments and, and get involved in companies. So some of the big problems out there, like I mentioned, were the shortage of labor. So how do we utilize the labor in the right way possible and how do we automate or uh, roboticize the things that are redundant, are risky and are complex within the system and how do we make them more simple for the producers or the farmers? So automation and robotics on the farm, in food production, 
One of the things in this space, in this vein that I'm really interested in is I can't pick up a paper and not read about a pathogen outbreak in food. Like we all just went through romaine again. Like they remove romaine from, you know, grocery store shelves and with E. coli. Yeah, with E. coli. And I'm like, we have the science to detect these things. Why aren't we doing better at the farms and at the processing plants to detect this stuff before it hits? you know, the consumer shelf. So that's another big problem area that we we're looking at. I think the restaurant and food service industry is becoming very, very difficult with the uh, rise of Uber Eats and other ways of servicing food. And if you see what Travis's next evolution of his business is, he's now down in LA working on cloud kitchens, which is all about turning, you know, excess retail space into ghost kitchens that can service food. You don't need to have a physical location. So what changes about food service when you don't need a restaurant? to service food. Like that's a big change to the way that we think about food. And it's because millennials are driving into this order on demand food kind of world. And then I think some of the uh, other big challenges are around, as I said, food as medicine or food as health. How do we put nutrition back into the food so that we make it solve specific problems that we have? I think brain health, like you said, with your company is incredibly important. I'm really looking for what's the next Weight Watchers or Nutrisystem? Like there's a multi, multi-billion dollar market out there for weight loss and weight management. And there has not been a, a yet a solution that's kind of come in and really, really disrupted that whole market because it's something like three out of every four US, you know, households consider themselves overweight or want to lose weight. And so like there's a huge opportunity there that someone's got to figure out. And I think the challenge for me is it's both a technical solution as well as behavior change. And I think that's one of the things I, I see is we get a lot of tech founders that come in and go, I'm just going to put an app in front of them or a service in front of them that's going to deliver them a fresh meal, fresh and healthy meal. But you don't understand that there's a behavioral change to get them to keep coming back to you and make that an on-demand kind of thing. So we're tracking a couple services that have the potential to become a Weight Watchers or Nutrisystem-like disruptor using technology and information to help better service their customers. Yeah. One company that we have in our portfolio that uh, is relevant to the discussion is called Calliope. It's a company that is m- mapping the relationship and the pathways between our gut and our brain. And turns out that the, that saying butterflies in our stomach is actually a true thing and there are neurons in our gut. And this company actually figured out, it's, if you think about it as like a piano, you know, what are the notes that you have? And if you press different notes together, what kind of things highlight in your brain? And when you think about impulse, about, you know, happy feelings that you get from eating certain things, this, this company can be really disruptive also in that, in that idea of like our reactions to the things that happen inside our, our guts. And I think that that's an area that both Renata and I are very excited about, which is when the system of our body becomes digitized and how we know how food will react to it becomes, unlocks a whole lot of potential. And I think the term that most people use is personalized nutrition, but really understanding what it means to feed this system, our body with the right nutrients and what the right, res- and what the net results are going to be between sensors and products and the 23andMe's and Ubiomes of the world. We're going to learn a lot about the system, how do we turn that into actionable like utility for the food world and for ultimately for a good health outcome? And another way of asking the question is if, if you guys said, I'm going to put my entrepreneur hats on, uh, no longer be investors and had any array of talents, what startup in the space might you pursue? Going back to my comment about personalized nutrition, like I said, I think that there is something we know about the body and what people want or desire. And then there's connecting that to the set of products or services that will ultimately help them achieve whatever the outcomes are they are trying to do. Like for Renata's case, the brain health, is it because you're you're competing against a brain 
issue, meaning like your brain is deteriorating, you need to buffer that, or you're trying to increase your productivity or enhance something. And so one of the things that I think is missing right now is a definition of personalized nutrition that really encompasses what you're trying to accomplish, what the products are that can solve those needs, and then how do you create a solution for someone that's either medical necessity or just personal desire. And I think everybody's going at it from slightly different perspective. There's no one service that kind of encompasses that. So if I have um, diabetes, for example, Verta Health is servicing me as a diabetes provider. But if I want to do just something small every day that reduces my chance of diabetes, I have to go look for you know relative services. So I build something kind of, I, don't know, I guess I would say it's a uh, behavior change company that's helping people identify and find the products and services that will change their health outcomes. I, I would just go and basically create the the new food companies of the future, like the Coca Cola of the future, the Kellogg of the future, the Pepsi. It's obvious. Like, right. It's obvious what people you know have today and what people need change to be. And I would try to figure out what are my passions and interests and like unique insights to create these new products. But what needs to be attacked is. Is right in our faces. And are you seeing any startups doing like Kellogg of, tw- you know, 2018 or, cause I haven't seen any. So one of the big ones is CBD. So obviously all the food companies have now started to think about how CBD plays in their plans. So Coca Cola and all the alcoholic beverage companies have started to say like, we want alcoholic beverages or beverages that are non-alcoholic, but that have a euphoric, you know, feel, right? Cause that's it potentially habit forming. Right. Is that why you were laughing or because you have stealth company? <laughs> well, I mean, yes. Both. <laughs> Both. <laughs> that, that's, that's the, that's the master plan. Yeah. I would say if there was one thing that I heard recently that I was like, wow, that actually could be huge is like a big beverage company coming to me and say, I want a non-alcoholic beverage that has the same effects as alcohol. And I think yeah. I've heard that from a couple other people as well. And there's a couple coming down the pipe that everyone's kind of excited about. That's right. Yeah. That's alcohol right. is like one of the biggest causes of death. So. Yeah. As Homer Simpson said, it's the cause of and solution to all the world's problems. <laughs> <laughs> so if we could create a better solution for the world's problems, that might be a good thing. It seems like as good a note to end on as any. <laughs> this is a fantastic podcast. Thank you guys so much for, no, for coming hosting. out. Our pleasure. Really appreciate it. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 